This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by the Socialism 2019 Conference, which is taking place this July 4th through 7th in Chicago. Socialism 2019 is the largest socialist conference in North America. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, and socialists fighting for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and organizing their workplaces and social movements. Participate in panels and discussions on black feminism, radical film, reparations, Palestinian liberation, and the socialist case for open borders. Speakers at Socialism 2019 include Naomi Klein, David Harvey, Astra Taylor, Amy Goodman, Anand Gopal, Francis Fox Piven, me, Dan Denver, and many more. Teacher strike leaders from the past year will come together at the conference with other teachers and union organizers to share experiences, inspire, and strategize. Socialism 2019 Conference is organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin and is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. And make sure to register before May 31st for the early bird discount rate. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Bernie was at his best recently when he pushed back, and pushed back really hard, against a New York Times journalist who suggested that he should regret having shown solidarity to the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. He was not at his best when, asked on at least two occasions about open borders, he scoffed that it was a Koch brothers idea or something threatening to the welfare state. Bernie's stubbornness is his best quality. It's probably his worst quality, too. If you've ever listened to this show before, you likely know that I very much want Bernie Sanders to be elected president of the United States. But far too often, Bernie's supporters allow establishment liberal critics to box us into a corner. We are rightly protective, given the constant smears. But Bernie no doubt does have shortcomings, including some that might become obstacles to him beating Joe Biden and winning the primary. This is why, on both moral and pragmatic grounds, I recently published an essay in Jacobin appraising and critiquing Bernie's approach to immigration. His track record and rhetoric has a lot of bright spots and is far better historically than that of the Democratic establishment. But some of his rhetoric and his failure to tie migrant workers into the core of his broader working-class agenda also damagingly plays into the open borders debate, which, in essence, is a right-wing trap. I'll link to that essay in the show notes. Generally speaking, my take is this. Our critiques of Bernie are less helpful or relevant when they simply identify what's obvious— that Bernie, from a socialist perspective, is not advancing a truly socialist or communist program. Here's what I mean. For example, 
Bernie's failure to support worker control of the means of production would be a problem if enormous masses of workers were seizing their workplaces and Bernie was standing in their way. That, of course, is not the case. The United States, unfortunately, is not in a revolutionary situation. What we are in is a moment where there is a profound elite crisis of hegemony that has created an opening to new forms of politics, a process within which the socialist left plays a still small, if very important, role. And so where we must critique Bernie, I think, is not when he's insufficiently radical in terms of him not making our utopian horizon into his platform, but rather when he's simply getting the politics of something wrong, and thus failing to occupy and define the left end of a dynamic national debate. And that brings me to this week's episode, which is a discussion with Malaika Jabali and Wendy Muse on Bernie's track record, successes, and shortcomings with black voters. And this, I think, is a critical discussion to have on the left, because there is so much misinformation emanating from the mainstream. Bernie is not, as the conventional wisdom goes, disliked by most black voters. Not only do most black voters like Bernie, he did very well among young black people in 2016. He did, however, get crushed among older black voters, particularly in the South. In part, what happened is that young black voters turned out in such low numbers that Bernie got crushed among black voters as a whole. And so in part, what this interview is trying to figure out is, what does Sanders need to do to win over a much bigger proportion of black voters, including turning out a much larger number of young black voters. Before we get this started, if you're a Dig listener and Dig lover who does not yet support us at patreon.com slash the dig, and you can afford to do so, well, then today is a great day to start. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity, or Feminism for the 99% by Nancy Fraser, Cynthia Arutza, and Tithi Bhattacharya. $20 or more, and we'll send you a big package of left-wing books. We spend the money you contribute on things like our new website, thedigradio.com, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already. And I also have more ideas still very much in their early stages for the future. And so, please, if you haven't already, contribute what you can at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and here's Malaika Jabali and Wendy Muse. Malaika Jabali is a public policy attorney, writer, and activist whose writings on politics and race have appeared in Jacobin, The Intercept, and Current Affairs, among others. Wendy Muse is a Ph.D. candidate in history at New York University, where she is studying Portuguese Africa's impact on the Brazilian left through intellectual and political exchange. Wendy is also the creator of the Left Pocket Project, which makes the histories of leftist movements led by and comprised of people of color more easily accessible to the public. And you can check that out by following Left POC on Twitter. 
Wendy Muse, welcome to The Dig, and Malaika Jabali, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks, Dan. Let's start with the liberal misrepresentations about the relationship between Sanders and Black voters before we get to Sanders's actual struggles with Black voters and how he and his campaign might overcome them. During the 2016 campaign, not just then, but that was a big moment, of course, Clinton partisans and the media pushed and peddled a number of myths. What were they and what did they get wrong? There were countless myths. Um, you know, one of the major ones I saw frequently and that I even saw Nate Silver forward once again in recent weeks, people had noted that, you know, black people are fairly conservative and especially black Southerners. And, you know, we tend to vote for more conservative Democrats without necessarily taking into account the fact that a lot of people, black people, white people, people of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds tend to also vote on the basis of whom they think will win. Um, the votability and likability and all of that is important, um, but also electability is is a really big sort of pink elephant in the room um, that some people don't seem to want to talk about, even though they, they push this idea of electability all the time, but then sort of don't follow up with understanding, or at least in contextualizing how voters respond to that. Um, and some voters more than others, I think, respond um pretty significantly to it because we're thinking about risk, right? So if you're a Black person in the South, most likely, and I'm, I grew up in the South, I'm a Black person who was born and raised in the South, so I understand fully the concerns about white supremacy and economic loss, job insecurity, all of that, and especially cities in the South are also deindustrialized cities like you see in Detroit, Baltimore, Chicago, et cetera. So it's sort of ridiculous that we're expected to not be concerned about who will win. And so I think a lot that that idea of who will win motivates many voters more so than necessarily this idea of social or even economic conservatism. Because if you look at the way the movements, at least, that were led by Black people in general throughout this country, but especially in the South, many of them were rooted in this idea of liberation theology, for example, or rights for women or civil rights and basic human rights. So it's kind of absurd that people would assume and, and then continue to push that Black voters are more conservative than any other voters. Yeah, I think Wendy hit basically everything that I would have said And when you look at kind of the way that, and this is Malika, by the way, I think when you look at the way that the media is kind of spinning Biden's entry into the field more, you know, officially, even though everyone kind of assumed that he would, we're looking at a lot of polling data that is just way too early to be making all these proclamations about black voters or voters of color. I remember I saw a headline in the Washington Post, or it might have been the New York Times, and it lumped Bernie Sanders in with Buttigieg and um, Buttigieg, excuse me, and Beto, and said that you know all these people are having problems with black voters. But then when you actually look at the content of the article, they had maybe one person cited who said that they supported Biden because he was with Obama. So there is a real disconnect between what I think the media narrative and the media establishment assumes about black voters based on the people who do come out and vote, who didn't, who do tend to be aligned more with the democratic establishment and the wide variety of black people who have been so disaffected by 40 years or 50 years of deindustrialization, 50 years of economic loss and strife, who don't feel like going to the polls at all. And a lot of candidates aren't speaking to them and the media narrative tends to villainize them instead of actually addressing their material needs. 
the conservatism is one myth, but there's even an idea amongst the liberal commentariat, including the black liberal commentariat, that black voters actively dislike Sanders. That's something that if you spend too much time on Twitter, you'll <laughs> pick up on, of course. That might be true for Joy Ann Reed, but can you say a little bit about, about this discourse and the degree to which it reflects reality? Well, I think it is hard to know any of this um, unless you're relying on anecdotes. Like, I don't know if there are any polls that say, do you dislike Bernie Sanders? I think <laughs> before Biden entered the race, what we saw was Bernie being kind of a front runner across the board because he was probably the most well-known of the group. Um, people were most most familiar with his record more than any of the other candidates that you know, had been, you know, had announced. So it's hard to know, you know, what that is and what that means. I mean, of course, anecdotally, you do hear kind of complaints across the board in terms of his approach with race issues and not being able to be fluid in, in terms of how he talks about white supremacy or the intersections of race and class. But you can also find a lot of, you know, black millennials who support him and about 50 percent of black millennials said that they supported him in 2016. So it's really hard to tell what, you know, how much validity there is to that without any, you know, actual, with a, without a lot of data supporting it. And we've touched a bit on polls already, but one of, like you had mentioned earlier, Malika, one of the issues with polls is that they're all taken, they're all using different data sets and they're all using different groups. Um, I think that if we're using polls alone, then I think this poll is, is fairly significant, but I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of, again, base all of our discussion and all of our, our pushback, I think, against these narratives on polls. And I think we have to be careful as well in terms of like making sure that we're not and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I'm saying in general, right? Making sure that we're not using polls as the end-all be-all for measuring um, Black likelihood to vote for him, particularly considering that sir, we have so much time left um, before the first vote is cast. So I think we have before to Before the really poll careful. that matters. Exactly. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about Sanders' actual problems or struggles with Black voters, because Clinton did handily beat him amongst Black voters and was just crushed on that count in the South. And that's, I think, that Sanders supporters, and I know, Wendy, you've been attuned to this, are often so protective of the sort of anti-Sanders disinformation on this subject that maybe they have struggled to accept that there is, if they want Sanders to win, things that need to be figured out. The reality is that Bernie just has to do a lot better with black voters. Regardless, We don't know quite how well he's doing, but he needs to do better, it seems, if he's going to win the nomination. So before... We get to what he can do better and differently. What's wrong and what's right with what he's doing now? I just want to address the Clintons really quickly. Um, and Clintons, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, both uh, their likability and, and favorability in the South among black Southerners. One thing that I think is not addressed and rarely addressed at all when we discuss um, Clinton's likability, one of the things I hear a lot is like, oh, you know, they had an in with the black church or they, you know, because they were, Bill was from the South and they were in Arkansas for so long and blah, 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 fill in the blank. There are lots of reasons that are given why the Clintons did so well in the South. But one of the things that I rarely, I don't think if ever I've heard discussed is this idea that 
if you're growing up in an environment in an environment where whites and blacks are living separately, there's spatial segregation, there's social segregation, there's a huge economic gap. And you have a white person who grows up poor, just like you, who understands you culturally, who may have grown up beside you. And I'm talking right now about, about Bill Clinton and who presents himself in a way that not is not just a matter of tokenizing black people, but being friendly with black people, being warm with black people touching black people. I mean, literally shaking hands with black people. These things are um, not necessarily understood in, in the North necessarily as major issues, but in the South where we have, and people have, have talked about this sort of um, huge gap between white people who have black friends or friends of color at all versus the number of people of color who have white friends. This gap makes a difference. And I think seeing and growing up, and especially if you're an older uh, black person in the South, seeing a white person who's not afraid of you, who's willing to, to be friendly with you, who engages with you is important. And I think in many ways, Sanders, while he has not done anything that's like flagrantly against black people or ever rejected physically, you know, physically rejected black people, I think he doesn't have the same type of warmth among black people. And this is something that the Clintons worked on for years. It's something that um, Bill Clinton, I think, sort of grew up with. And so this makes a difference in terms of how people read you, whether or not the, you know, sort of regardless of the issues, to be honest. And I think this is an element that people sort of underestimate. And so we can go forward and talk, you know, more about, about where Sanders is messing up and should do better. But I think warmth, um, unfortunately, is something that he lacks, and that if you look at polling with Biden um, or the relation, the you know the response to Biden, I think this makes a difference and and one that is significant. That's a really interesting point because Sanders is not warm with anyone. Obviously, I've met him once, and right. I was it was sort of like refreshing <laughs> when I met him how little he was trying to like you know chat me up. He was just like, okay, what are we about to talk about? But you're saying that that lack of warmth might be read in a particularly not great way amongst some black people, particularly in the South. And seen as racist, to be honest. I mean, this is what we're used to dealing with, with a lot of white people, white peers even. Um, so that that lack of warmth can be read as um, an inability to connect with us. So, Yeah, I think going off of that, uh, Wendy and I have also talked about being both black and Southern. And just, I think to provide kind of a personal anecdote. When I was growing up, I lived in a neighborhood that initially we were surrounded entirely by white residents. So all of our neighbors were white. And growing up, we had very conservative neighbors, but they made sure to come over and stop by and give us a fruit basket with their George Bush, you know, <laughs> uh, paraphernalia in their, in their front yard. <laughs> but we could still talk and, and be normal. And I think what... I, I think what's easy to forget with the political landscape, because a lot of us are so um, attuned to policy and we care about policy, is that politics does not necessarily just focus on policy. It's mm -hmm. about connecting with people. It's about having that sort of human connection. And I see that as well. So in terms of Bernie Sanders, so when he was that she to people, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about that at some point. You could kind of see that with, with the audience comparing him to somebody like Elizabeth Warren when she's talking about her mama and her grandmama. And some of these might be kind of putting on airs because you are in, embroiled in politics and you know that you have to connect with people. Some, so some of it may not be particularly authentic, but if it reads as authentic, people are going to 
instill that sort of familiarity that they'll need when they may not know all the details of your policy or think that all of the policies are great, but they feel like you've got their back. And I think it, it can be as simple as that. Are they familiar enough with me? Are they comfortable enough with me? Or I know that they're going to be fighting for me, even if that is not true. So that's one element of it where I, I do see that and I see kind of that lack of human connection. And that's not just for black people. I think anybody would care about mm-hmm. not having that sort of human connection with a politician. That's why George Bush became president as you know George W. Bush became president. That's how you know, I think Mitt Romney lost and, and Barack Obama won. He connected with even white people because they're like, oh, I could see having a, a beer with this black man, even though they're calling him a socialist. I may not agree with his policies. He's black, but he seems cool. So I think that matters across race. But I do want to kind of push back on this notion that the Clintons even won over that many black people, even with that. Of the black people who came out and voted, yes, they voted for Hillary Clinton, but a lot of people saw through it and they did not care to vote for them. In 1996, and Bill Clinton's second term, he got the lowest black voter turnout in history. So even with that, a lot of black people are kind of on the margins and, and their voices aren't being heard in this dominant narrative of what is electable. It's interesting what this discussion, because I think for a lot of people, Bernie's anti-charisma is a charisma of sorts. But for some people, it's just anti-charisma. Sure. And I don't think I mean, I agree with Malika in the sense that I don't think it's just a black thing. Um, But I do think in the South where we're dealing with like very blatant anti-black racism, um, Mm -hmm. that that kind of warmth becomes uh, significant in ways that perhaps it's not so significant in other spaces. Um, and that's not, of course, to say that there's not anti-Black racism, racism in the North, as we both know. Um, but I just think in terms of like social norms and um, everyday interactions, it makes a difference. Uh, yeah. So I just wanted to add that, too. The the 2020 campaign, though, has obviously made it a priority to attempt to humanize Bernie and get him to talk about himself as a human and not just a left social democratic policy class struggle machine. And so this time, Sanders and his campaign have foregrounded, in particular, his history in the 60s civil rights movement in Chicago, and really made that front and center from the moment of the opening rally in Brooklyn. What do you make of this biographical turn, its emphasis on the 60s struggle, and how do you think black voters might respond or are responding already? Well, I don't think black voters are going to respond in all the same ways. I think that's going to matter to a fair amount of people. I think for some folks, it may not matter as much as what you've been doing in the last 10 or 15 years. So I think the response is going to vary. I think for black people who might be more, I'd say that black people who are more progressive and and are on the left are radicals, as I, I consider myself. That is something else to consider, though we were already kind of aware of um, his civil rights involvement. But for folks who are just kind of hearing about this for the first time, or they may not be clear about Bernie's stances on race and and how his policies would be attuned to lowering these, these racial wealth gaps, then it may not matter as much. I really do think people care about, you know, what have you done for me lately? What are you talking about in black communities today? Um, It it doesn't hurt, but when you look at somebody like Biden, who's had a 40 year history of throwing black people under the bus, uh, so to speak, then how you relate to people now probably matters most in 2020. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too. I think that there's a degree to which he sort of foregrounds this element of his marching in the past, uh, marching on Washington, protesting in the 60s and all of that. And that's 
I think, very important, historically speaking. But I don't know, as you said, you know, what have you done for me lately? It's This is a question that's often asked. Whenever I've seen interviews of him, for example, the interview on The Breakfast Club, he was asked, what have you done for you know, that you, what can you speak to specifically about policies that you have worked um, towards with regard to black people? And it was just sort of like radio silence for a minute. And then he sort of stumbled and talked about class again. And I think that what, where he fails often, um, and this is something that I've been super critical of, is making connections. So not only emphasizing maybe what he's done in the present or closer to the present than the 60s, but also talking about ways that a lot of his economic policies disproportionately affect, and positively so, Black people in this country, is if we're considering the fact that Black people in this country are also disproportionately living in poverty. And I think that, you know, if we're, if we live in a country where a lot of things, if not everything, is racialized. That's the reality. And we can talk about class all day long, but if we've been raised and racial and, and sort of um, socialized in a way that emphasizes race more than anything, and almost in many cases uses race as a surrogate for discussing class, then there's no, you're, it's a different language, right? So I think if you're leading with class-only uh, rhetoric, Black people in many cases, not all, of course, but I think in this country where we are socialized in this way, many Black people, at least, even if they also are poor, may not hear the message, right? Um, and I think especially if there's no recognition of the necessity to have fail-safes, for example, in class-only or class-related um, legislation, I think people will see it as an abandonment of you know, racial issues in this country that do intersect with class. I think Stuart Hall described it well when he said race is the modality in which class is lived. And so Bernie and really the left as a whole has got to speak to that lived experience that's part of addressing class. Absolutely. Malika? I mean, I guess since we're kind of talking about that more um, specifically in terms of those intersections of race and class, and absolutely there are so many ways to explore that because everything that he talks about, every one of his policies that do touch on kind of these economic issues do disproportionately affect black people. And so I feel like he kind of puts these things in silos when he talks about them. So I, I heard an interview that he did at one point, I can't recall exactly where it was, but he said something about the working class, people of color, women, something, something. And for that to kind of be your go-to as if the working class is not black, as if the working class <laughs> is not Asian. And that was just like a, a slip. And I think people are very used to doing that where there is a kind of unspoken working class white after the end of that. So if you are putting these things in silos where there's criminal justice on one hand, there's deindustrialization that's affecting, you know, blue collar white voters on the other, and you're not saying, well, in the Midwest, you have the worst cases of, of black home ownership, like the, the least amount of black home ownership in the country in the Midwest. You had black men who failed to recover after deindustrialization from the 70s more so than any other demographic in the Midwest. Black families fail to recover after the Great Recession more than any other ethnic group, any other demographic in the country. So there are ways to talk about all of these policies, to talk about glass of Gauls, to talk about um, deindustrialization, to talk about the wealth gap, which is driven by the racial wealth gap, and make those intersections that he's not been able to do fluidly yet. Yeah, Wendy, can you can you expand on that? I know this has been a thing that you have thought about a lot. How how does Sanders currently talk about race and class? And we could add in 
gender and other issues as well. And how does he talk about those things? And what would connecting the dots in a compelling and frankly, more analytically accurate way look like? Right. I mean, one of the things that I recall from 2016 is for a long time, he was sort of pushed by Black Lives Matter activists to finally (laughs) include something about criminal justice reform and something about policing. Right. Um, And what he would do is he would have a speech where he's talking about, you know, the billionaires and the millionaires and billionaires, Medicare for all, free college, all of these things with no mention at all of race or gender, which, okay, fine, like that, whatever. But then he would start talking about policing and criminal justice. And then he would start mentioning blackness and black people in this country. And I think that separating these issues as if they're somehow disconnected. So as if, you know, policing, you know, extrajudicial murder of black people in this country is not connected to class, for example, or not connected to lack of access to all sorts of resources in this country is a bit absurd. Um, And I think, you know, as, as Malika already mentioned, he's sort of, he's at least starting to insert something. So for example, when he talks about Medicare for all now, he does mention something often uh, these days about, you know, um, infant mortality rates among black women and um, discrimination even against black women, uh, mothers, black mothers, for example, are pregnant, people who are pregnant in hospitals and at, at the moment of birth. But I think that there is still a disconnect on many otherwise understood as explicitly economic policies, which is a massive problem. So for example, if we're going to talk about policing, one of the things that is pretty obvious if you look at the statistics is the fact that like police obviously are more heavily um, located in lower income areas. Many of those lower income areas also are black, especially in urban environments or black and Latino in most cases. And then you see an increase of, of police murders in these, in these instances. That's not to say that black people who live in upper class areas are not also dealing with aggressive policing or racialized violence and things like that. But the reality is that black poor people are dealing with it disproportionately. Their access to housing, what types of housing they're living in puts them in in danger in terms of um, environmental issues and all sorts of things. I think that there are ways to connect the dots in that way. And I'm not saying that his entire speech needs to be all about black people or all about Latinos, for example, but I think there needs to be more of more thought put into connecting the economic and the racial and also the gender. I mean, even when this is sort of going off topic, but just thinking about all of the anti-abortion bills that are coming out, um, basically, you know, not basically banning abortion in many states. And there's very little discussion about this, how about how this connects to economics, which women are tending to have abortions more and why. Um, If you look at these rates, they're predominantly women of color and predominantly women of color who are poor. So if we don't connect the dots between healthcare, between between having access to um, childcare, having access to schools, having so many things, having higher pay, we're, I think, losing out in terms of not only a a voting body that could be expanded, but also discussions that need to be had um, on the left in this country. He could also connect the dots, I think, between race and class on criminal justice by addressing it as a racial justice issue, but not just a racial justice issue, because a lot of people are locked up in this country. And that would be a way that he could talk about racial justice and then also address poor white people and make it clear to them that they have a a direct and not just kind of in solidarity with black people's stake in ending mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. One thing that it seems to me that it would that he should be more fluent given his political history and pointing out is the way that racism and xenophobia and sexism 
are, of course, first and foremost, harmful to black people, Latino people, Muslims, women, but that they also function to divide and conquer working people for the sake of the very same billionaires that he's always rallying against. It's hard to do that. And I think Wendy opened this up um, appropriately when we think about the way that white supremacy has been woven in this country. And so I think one way to think about that is how we frame identity politics, which is all often framed as something that is weaponized against people of color, but it's also weaponized against white people. And so if you look at who has supported you know, a lot of these conservative presidents, they have been white people who are not thinking about, you know, their self interest or they're thinking that their self-interest is tied up with the billionaires and the millionaires and the 1%. So if we are not directly addressing the way that white people are also being impacted by identity politics, by keeping us from having, you know, a Bernie Sanders, when you consider that the majority of white people voted for a Republican. When you mm-hmm. look at the fact that, and you know, Obama wasn't a populist or progressive president, but he was definitely a, progr- a progressive and populist candidate. When he was running on that, John McCain and Mitt Romney outflanked him when it came to the white working class. White women performed. I mean, they they voted more for Donald Trump and Mitt Romney than any of the Democratic candidates. So if we're not thinking about how identity politics affects everybody and, and identity politics, of course, did not start off as this kind of it's been mutated lately and kind of weaponized. But it started off with with feminists of color saying, hey, these are ways that we can be different within this broad coalition. But outside of that and beyond that, we have a white supremacist system that we need to name directly to say that that is what is also undermining kind of these working class coalitions as well. And if white people are internalizing that, then their votes are going to reflect that. Wendy? Yeah. The other thing that's missing too oftentimes, I think, is our is our discussion of who doesn't vote, right? And white people are also a big part of that, especially poor white people. And one of the things that I saw, at least in the 2016 election, often even weaponized against people on the left was, well, you see these poor white workers or poor poor working class white people voted for uh, Trump in overwhelming numbers. And if you look at the actual numbers, that's not true. Uh, most of the people, the, the bulk of Trump's base is actually upper middle class, white people and upper class white people. And so it's sort of ridiculous that we don't have sort of any real structure or discussion about how to reach voters who who are people who tend not to vote. And this includes white working class people who tend not to vote or who in many cases in 2016 either didn't vote or voted for Hillary Clinton. And I think it's important for us to, to also recognize that this discussion about trying to appeal to the white working class by going towards our racist instincts or our xenophobic instincts is a really failed plan. Um, And it's also assuming, first of all, that white poor people are somehow more racist or more xenophobic than their Mm -hmm. upper class counterparts. Um, But secondly, in addition to making this assumption, it's also abdicating the the work that needs to be done among white workers or white poor people as well. Um, and I think to to get them to vote, you don't have to appeal to some sort of imagined racist white person. Um, and I'm not sure 
where or why that's come about. In many cases, I feel like it's just sort of people projecting their own racism. So some white, some white leftists, perhaps projecting their own racism onto this project and using that, using white working class people as sort of a foil to say, oh no, see, they're racist. And we have to, we have to talk about them and talk to them in this way. When in actuality, that's, that doesn't necessarily track with, with reality. Yeah. Appealing to whiteness or nationalism to appeal to white voters is a horrible idea because whiteness and nationalism are the core vehicles for reactionary cross-class solidarity in this country. Mm-hmm. It's it's fundamentally, definitionally, a right-wing politics, so it can't work for the left. But there's this perception, I think, that attacking racism distracts from the universal class project, but it seems actually that attacking racism is perhaps a prerequisite for that universal class project. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. You all were just mentioning non-voters, and I've been framing this whole interview about what Sanders has to do to win voters. But obviously, it seems very likely that if he's going to win both the primary and the general, he has got to bring a whole lot of people out who don't usually vote. And that's a giant number of people. They're disproportionately poor. They're disproportionately black. What sort of strategy can bring out millions of non-voters who are so alienated from politics and alienated for very good reason? And and where do black voters fit into this? Black non-voters, sorry. <laughs> well, I think it is difficult to frame this within presidential politics because that sort of groundwork has to be done 24-7, 365. So a lot of my work is in community organizing when I'm not writing, when I'm not lawyering. <laughs> I work with a social justice organization in East New York called Operation Power. And what we've had to do is attract people who don't necessarily think about politics as often as we do and say, this is how politics affects our everyday lives. This is how having somebody in the community board who looks like us. This is why having a city council member who can make land use decisions, an assembly person who can talk about taxes, who represents these black radical politics, this is why this is important. And we meet on a regular basis. So I think the first thing is that if people are to be engaged in politics for an election season, they have to be engaged throughout to know that it's even worth their time. I think it's hard to do it kind of from this top-down level if there there hasn't been sort of this grassroots organizing, this grassroots foundation set up in between all of those years, because otherwise it just seems as if you're going to be responding to polls or responding to kind of an assortment of spontaneous events without actually addressing people's issues or or showing that you're committed to the community. So, but aside from that, I think one of the things that you can do, which I've talked about in some of my work, like Color of of Economic Anxiety, is to talk about people's economic issues. I don't know if there is a, um, you can say there's a causation between people who are kind of going through economic strife and and their willingness to to vote, Um, but there's definitely a correlation. And so if you can energize people with policies that are actually going to address their needs and also have kind of these other elements in terms of, you know, your personality that do matter that we, you know, we've already talked about in terms of connecting on a human level with people, then those are, it's kind of a layer. I don't think it's one easy answer. I think it's a layer of things that are involved from everyday organizing 
to dealing with people's material needs to having a, the human connection to inspire them. Yeah, I think I I mean I agree 100% with that with regard to making deeper connections and making making sure that those connections are sustained beyond the you know every four years electoral horse race that we have. Um and this is a criticism that many black activists that I know at least who worked with the Sanders campaign in 2016 have actually made and raised they said you know he should have done more um in the lead up to 2016 although there's some argument um that he perhaps was running more of an issues campaign than an actual campaign to win. Um, but there's an argument made with regard to his lack of connecting with many of the organizers who were already on the ground and doing work within the communities that he unfortunately um, didn't end up picking up in high numbers um, in the 2016 election. But another thing I would just add to this is that I think beyond making these connections and having the policy, there also has to be an understanding and an assurance that these policies will actually get passed. I think one of the concerns that that I know I have and that other people have, friends of mine have, family members of mine have, is the question of, you know, how do we know that these things are actually going to be put into practice once somebody wins office? How do we know that they're going to take care of this? How do we know that with a Republican-controlled Senate um, now, and at least we have a, a Democrat-controlled House, but that's not saying much considering so many Democrats mm-hmm. are also right-leaning, how do we make sure that these ideas that sound great on paper actually are carried carried out once someone is in office. And I think that there, there may need to be some discussion about, you know, how he's going to do that. Because I think often we talk about, you know, the question of how you're going to pay for it and whatever. And that's that's often just sort of a distraction. But I think a larger looming question that perhaps may make people feel more secure in casting a vote who maybe hadn't in the past perhaps because they thought it doesn't matter, nothing will matter, nothing will ever go through, is a reassurance that actually they will go through. And this is how I'm going to do that and deliver for you. Um, Because I think many communities poor, regardless, if you're poor, regardless of race, are used to being lied to, are used to hearing promises from politicians who, once they get into office, do an about face and and do whatever they feel like, or, or have to play a political game that involves throwing them under the bus and further marginalizing these groups as opposed to helping them. The whole framing of of not me us, I think, is an attempt to convey from Sanders that people are going to have to stay mobilized because he's even if it's a Democratic Congress, like you said, it's likely going to be hostile to a lot of his agenda. How can he convey that in a way that doesn't sound like it's because that's not exactly a promise of getting things done, but it is a realistic appraisal that his election will just be one step in a, a longer struggle. I mean, uh, executive orders. I know, that, and and I I can already imagine that you know Republicans will attack that um, as being draconian, or you know, look at the socialists. <laughs> you know, he's he's turning into fill in the blank like socialist um, boogeyman that they've they've put up for the week. Um, but I think that that might be one way to do it, at least on a, in a material way. Say, you know, this is first hundred days of office. I'm going to work towards passing this, and then based on you know the the american public's response if i have to do you know executive orders and if you look at people like trump a, a way to respond to what could be criticism of using the executive order is the simple fact that trump has used the executive order power excessively um and often if always actually to ill and so i think that there might need to be 
re- a reassessment of the validity and necessity in some cases of executive orders. Call me a statist if you want, but I think that might be the way to go. But beyond that, I'm 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 not a political strategist, so I'm not entirely sure, but I think that might be one step. I think also just again, putting pressure on politicians to respond to what their constituents want. So if and as we've seen repeatedly, many of Sanders's policy proposals are actually very popular. And so I think also an emphasis just on this is about you guys. You have to write your representatives. You have to write your senator. You have to call. You have to sit in their office. You have to do whatever you have to do to make sure that they feel the pressure as well so that there's no need to engage in executive orders, perhaps. Malika? Well, yes, I think having that sort of conversation and and framing where you are talking about local politics whether it's on kind of the municipal level or the state level can help. And I think also just kind of hyping up your successes. And I don't know, I mean, I, I really don't, frankly, I'm, I'm not super attuned to all of Bernie Sanders strategies. My, my focus has been on working class black community. So that's what I, I look at the most, but kind of in passing, I know that he's kind of put these ads out where he's showing like his support and some of it is just about um, communication. So talk about the fact that you've, you've had these upstart Congress, um, Congress people, Congresswomen who are leaning more progressive and that you've built this sort of or helped to jumpstart this progressive movement in Congress. Talk about the connections that you've been making with other communities and other kind of social justice groups and and the work that they're doing. So even if you're not doing that yourself because you are running a campaign, that's a lot of work. Even if you're not doing that yourself, you can highlight the the mass organizing that has taken place outside of presidential politics. And it and it's happened. We've been seeing it. It's not to the extent that it needs to be, but it's out there. And I think that's important to highlight in order to energize people because you, you got to get people who are going to have to come out, vote for this dude that, you know, they haven't heard a, a whole lot from, you know, maybe on a regular basis because Biden is all over there, that cable TV. So they got to come out in the rain or the cold or whatever after work when they're tired. So what is going to, to energize them? And I think, frankly, people look at people who other people like. So mm-hmm. if you show that other people are supporting, have supported you, that there is this kind of movement, that there is traction for this, that it is it is realistic and it can't happen, then... I think he could be more successful with that. And he has to be really careful too, I think, just because it's it's a it's a double-edged sword because I think on the one hand, promoting this you know, promoting this idea of the successes um that have run under the quote unquote political revolution, right, is very important, especially I think just on the, the basis of optics if they're women and people of color, women of color. But I also I can imagine in the back of my head people saying, well, see, he's taking credit for something that black women did or that Latina women did or fill in the blank when it was really about them and he's trying to make it about him. And so, I'm, I mean, and I, I think there's been some discussion of this as it relates to Chukwe Lumumba in Mississippi. And so he has to, he, he, I think that method is good that you propose, but it's he has to be very careful to make sure that it's about their message and they're sort of pushing this and to make sure that it doesn't end up sounding like, oh, you know, sort of paternalistic in the sense that Sanders helped put these people into office or fill in the blank. I just, we have to be, has to be careful. Yeah. Do you think AOC, Rashida Tlaib uh, and Ilan Omar will be useful surrogates if they do endorse? Oh yes, absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) Wendy, you've alluded to this, but I've been framing this discussion around how Sanders and his campaign should talk and message and communicate. 
And that's not a very thoroughly materialist analysis, of course. Mm -hmm. What does his campaign have to do in terms of concrete organizing? And does that look different in the black community or black communities than what organizing might need to look like in other communities? Oh, (laughs) I'm taking a deep breath here because there are at least a deep sigh just because I think that there is there's a sort of disproportionate focus on Sanders not doing well at this, whereas others are supposedly doing well at this. And I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. And I agree with what Malika said earlier a bit about, you know, um, sometimes likability being more important than anything else. If someone likes you, that that ends up being sometimes more important than all of your policies combined. But I I don't know. And I know that I'm not supposed to to admit a lack of knowledge in some area on a podcast. No, but I'm that's saying, a sign you know, of I, a strong mental health. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the answer is here. And I think, um, you know, with regard to going beyond the rhetoric, the closest thing that they can get to is really, as we've already said, ad nauseum at this point, you have to show what you've already done. And I think that the perception about Sanders is you know, he doesn't do anything. He just, he's been in political office for X amount of years and he's never passed a bill and blah, blah. This is sort of the the negative rhetoric we hear. And then on the, beyond social media, the messages, he's great and his ideas are good, but how do we have proof that he can get something like this passed? And also furthermore, you know, again, what we talked about earlier, what has he done specifically towards helping the black community or other communities of color? I think one way potentially to get, I mean, this is still sort of rhetorical and related to messaging, but I think one thing that he could do is at least show that he's putting into practice and putting into his policy platform things that he's gotten directly from local communities, right? So let's say he worked with X organization and they said they really want a candidate who focus on this is focuses on this particular issue in their community. I think if he's able to show that this policy platform idea came directly from these people and came re- responds directly to something that happens not only in their community but perhaps other communities. In other words, giving people direct credit, I think that really shows that he's listening and responding to and not necessarily hostile to the idea of taking criticism and working around it um, and working to to further um, implement it in his policies. I think also, you know, sometimes being more specific with his plans as well will help people in terms of getting them to to get behind him as organizers. Um, one of the things that even though she's not polling that well, but I think Elizabeth Warren has done rather successfully is mm-hmm. really spoken with specificity about what she's going to do. Um, she's not my favorite candidate. She has a lot of issues with regard to foreign policy that make me scratch my head and in, in shame and frustration. Um, but I think that she at least is good at articulating. She's good at coming up with plans and she's good at articulating how those plans intersect and connect certain ideas and issues. So for example, class and race or gender and race or et cetera. I think she's very good at that. And I think that the Sanders campaign, if they plan to win in 2016, could learn a lot from that and should reflect that in their campaign messaging. Well, on that point, we talked a little bit earlier about the Breakfast Club interview and something similar, as as you alluded to, Malika, earlier, similar but but I think quite a bit worse happened at She the People, which was a recent gathering in Houston of women, political operatives, and activists of color. And Sanders was jeered when he was asked about how to fight white supremacy and how to appeal to black women. 
he cited his work in the civil rights movement and marching with King in the March on Washington. What do you make of of how that played out and how Sanders could have better handled the questions? Handling the questions better than he did is a low bar, but how could he have handled them ideally? (laughs) To be clear, when he came out, it seemed like he was greeted with a fair amount of cheers, and then it just kind of (laughs) swiftly and steadily devolved from there. But the format from She the People, from what I saw, is that a woman would come up to the the stage and ask a question. So for each candidate, you kind of saw this process. And the woman who came up, who asked Sanders about the kind of this growing wave of white nationalism was talking about something very specific and something very current and something prescient that we're experiencing right now, where we're seeing a wave of of white domestic terror. Like literal Nazis in the streets with guns. Literal Mm -hmm. Nazis. Charlottesville, like you're in the South right now, like Sandra Bland, like she was experiencing this not that far away in Prairie View. So or I think it was Prairie View. And so we're seeing this happen right now from vigilante violence to state to state repression. And I think he started off his comment saying, well, you know, in 1960, the March on Washington. And so I think people were just kind of taken aback. I think there was there was a willingness to give him an opportunity to Mm -hmm. talk about something very specific. And it's so easy. That was almost like a gimme because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not talking, you know, you're not talking about just the average, um, like a white working class person who might've voted for Donald Trump. You're, you're talking about the most extreme of right wing supremacy and for him to not kind of take that gimme and be able to, um, hit it out of the ballpark, I think was a little, uh, jarring for some people who are in the, in the audience. So, you might have heard one or two boos from that when he did not answer the question directly. And I think eventually he kind of came around to say um, something that was a little bit vague and also very awkward because he said, well, in, in, in my campaign, you know, we've got women of color, we're going to attack it. And that was kind of it. So I don't think it's even so much who he is and, and the fact that he was talking about King, but this seems like something that you would hope a presidential candidate has thought about. Mm-hmm. And so it almost seemed like a, a lack of care for something that is very personal to a lot of people, that is very violent to a lot of people. And it almost seemed like he hadn't really thought about this issue at all, which was disconcerting. And not only that, he it didn't it didn't just feel that he didn't he hadn't thought about it, but also that he wasn't listening to the question either. Like his response, as you said, sort of didn't fit the question. And I think you know, if you are listening to your audience and if you want to be president of a country where we do clearly have a white supremacy problem, um, to say the least, I think there are certain things that just reading the news and having like a common sense response to, he could have answered with more specificity. So for example, um, one of the things that just came to mind right away is like this idea of, um, instituting education programs, like anti-racist education programs um, that fit into his other um, economic policy programs. Another thing he could do is like recently, you know, the task force, I believe it was part of the FBI. And while I'm not a fan of the FBI, but um, this this task force that was meant to investigate white supremacist terror in the United States was defunded, if not disbanded altogether, I believe. Um, And so talking about maybe approaches to reinstituting some sort of task force like that, not necessarily through the FBI, but maybe some sort of other investigatory 
program. I'm not sure what the what the sort of technical side of this would be, but I think definitely there needs to be some sort of funding from the government to combat these cells, basically, of, of white supremacist militia groups and terror groups like the KKK. Also, we had very recently, you know, issues of, of militias in the Southwest holding immigrants hostage at the border and like I mean, I, I, this has been going on for a while, actually. Like early, early 2000s, we saw the the growth of groups okay. like this, and so it's not like it's even that new. And if you're someone who was protesting in the 60s when black churches were being burned, and then we're here, we are in 2019, and you know synagogues are being attacked, mosques are being attacked, black churches are being attacked. It's very easy to connect these dots, and I, I don't think that there's been enough emphasis on on connecting those dots and he could have easily done that and it was for me at least it was disappointing and it was more disappointing i think further to see the response to that instead of saying that sanders himself should have done better or his campaign should have been more prepared to answer this pretty easy softball question um people were getting angry at the woman who had asked the question or people were saying that the format of the forum itself was was unfair to sanders and i think that our response cannot be that every single instance like situation that sanders is in is somehow unfavorable to him when it's a very easy question to answer just because there are so many unfair attacks on sanders we can't let that or Sanders support, supporters should not let that make them unable to see actual mm-hmm. problems because that's not that's not beneficial to Bernie or the campaign if he his campaign or his supporters refuse to reflect a, upon actual problems because so many fake problems mm-hmm. are thrown at them and this in particular I agree it's just the the opposite of rocket science Bernie could say these are the same forces that murdered my family in Europe and that I marched against in the 1960s and today our president. I regret to say, he'd probably say something like that, has emboldened these same white supremacist extremists. And as president, I will take firm action to fight racism and racist violence and then mention a policy, a few policies. It's not not so hard. It was a little, Uh, his response was a little curious to say (laughs) that. Perhaps the biggest lightning rod has been reparations. Sanders did come around to endorsing legislation that would create a commission to study reparations to the descendants of enslaved people. But I don't think he got much credit for that. And really, I don't think many people even noticed that that happened, in part because the damage had already been done. What do each of you make of reparations and how Sanders should approach it? Because polls show that many black people are in favor and that many, many white people are opposed. As an issue of justice and as a strategic issue, What's the right approach? And and is there a justice imperative here that's in tension with a strategic imperative? So personally speaking, I am in favor of reparations um, and particularly generationally sustaining reparations. So not just something to, to help people now, but something that is that tracks throughout uh, subsequent generations, um, because slavery itself was generational. So I think the response to it needs to be generational as well. Um, but I also think at the same time, um, and I, I appreciate actually that that Sanders has supported legislation. I saw that he actually did that at the conference that's sponsored by um, Al Sharpton every year, or at least during the oh, presidential campaign. Oh, yeah, the campaign. NAND conference. The NAND oh, conference, sorry. exactly. Thank you. Um, he, he mentioned at the NAND conference that he would support um, legislation by Conyers. And, um, 
you know, that was, that was, it was a big deal and it wasn't really talked about after that. Um, but I think where he could push further here is to, he doesn't, I, I would love if he said, you know, I support reparations and this is how it's going to look under Sanders presidency. But I think that he could at least begin to connect dots with his own economic policy plans and not by just saying this economic policy is going to cover uh, reparations because that's sort of been the response by some members of the Sanders campaign, if not Sanders supporters also, um, this idea that the the sort of universal economic programs will disproportionately help Black people and therefore that's enough somehow to sort of make up for the economic and social losses that we have suffered um, as a result of, of slavery in this country. So I think that he could at least start talking about, if he's going to go that route, he should start talking mainly about fail-safes within those programs that will directly connect with Black people um, who are suffering disproportionately from these things that these programs are meant to address. So, for example, we saw during the New Deal that there were um, issues with regard to implementation of New Deal programs where certain legislators um, at the local level, at least, were standing in direct um, opposition to making sure that all of the, the benefits and resources were properly and adequately sort of shared across their population. And I think that we have to start thinking about in the present because we're still dealing with local legislators and, and even federal legislators who would absolutely stand in the way of certain people getting certain resources. And so we have to start thinking in 2019, what's a way that we could sort of have a back-ended fail-safe within these programs to make sure that everyone gets everything equally? And I think going further with that, maybe even, I mean, this may not be favorable, but I think if there's a way to talk about it, to have certain things that affect Black populations, and I would argue Native populations as well, even more um, positively than certain other groups. If there's a way to say, you know, um, educational grants or something like that, if the grants themselves are slightly higher um, for certain people of color or, or something like that, there could be a way perhaps to make sure that those losses are sort of made up for within the programs themselves. Malika? Yeah, I think what's important is for people to even understand why reparations is needed. I, I think there is such a huge kind of gap in our education in terms of the extent of the economic adversity that was caused by discrimination, that was caused by the slave trade, that was caused by Jim Crow, where you didn't just have these private actors that were involved in discriminatory you know, housing um, policies, but the government itself. You know, if you take Folks in, you know, the segregated South were public school teachers and, and principals and staff. If you were white, you earned more money than somebody who was black. And so this is a solid 300 years, three centuries where black people were treated as second class citizens. And it created the, the wealth gap that we see today. And there's absolutely no other way that it, it amassed to that extent without that sort of government intervention in creating this wealth gap. And there is no other way to attack it without that sort of massive government intervention. So to tell people and, and educate people first foremost about why it's important, I think is in line with, you know, his stated policies and his stated goals, because if we're talking about, you know, the 1% and these um, wealth disparities that is driven by a racial wealth disparity, it's driven by, white people having 10 times more wealth than the average black family. And some of the you know, social uh, services that he's promoting are helpful. It will help close some, some gaps, but 
it will do nothing to to erase it altogether. And, and if you care about equity, if you care about liberation at all, you want people to be able to be on equal footing. And that cannot happen without government inter- intervention. What that looks like is another discussion. But, you know, if you look at some of his earlier answers, which caught, you know, all this media attention, it was almost an immediate dismissal of the mm-hmm, idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're rejecting it outright and then second, you know, right after it following up, well, well, what is reparations? Instead of saying, well, I support it, but I would like more details. There's a difference in tone. There's a difference in, in how people are going to receive that because then it seems like you dismiss it and you don't care even if you don't know what it looks like. I think that's a really important point, even just about the the tone. I think there's room for debates over reparations on the left. I, I support them, but I think that a, a basic starting point for the left should be that if so many black people support reparations, that the left and everyone on the left, supporters and skeptics of reparations, should at least give it very serious and respectful thought. And also, if we've talked, I mean, we, Malika mentioned the idea of education programs. I mean, arguably, we could look at this and say, not everyone, and we didn't have as much favor, favorable responses to medical Medicare for all in the past. We didn't have as many favorable responses to free college in the past. I mean, these ideas that Sanders has forwarded have become more popular with time because we're constantly hearing about them, right? And we're constantly discussing them. And I think if we just sort of have a moratorium altogether on the discussion and the prospect of educating people about the idea of reparations and about the the impact of slavery in this country, then we're sort of um, foreclosing something that I think is very important um, on the left in general. So it's it's kind of weird that, not weird, um, but I think in some cases fitting for some people that that's the thing that they come, you know, they, they, they say, no, we're not, we can't talk about this. There's no way it's never going to be popular. And I recall in the past Sanders saying it would be too divisive. Um, but like other things that he's pushed for have also been at one point considered divisive. And now they're incredibly popular. So I think rhetoric and, and propaganda towards a specific policy can go a long way. And there's a sleight of hand, there's a sleight of hand by which it's anti-racism that's seen as divisive rather than racism. That's, right. <laughs> that's which is what is actually divisive. Like it literally divides people into make-believe categories called racial groups. Right. On the subject of the politics of reparations, Kianga Yamada Taylor and Adolf Reed had an interesting debate on Philly's public radio station recently. And Kianga said something that I've been thinking a lot about since. I do think that on the one hand, it is incumbent on all of us to think through if and how we can build a majority coalition around any of our demands, because that's what it's going to take to win office and implement them. But looking concretely at that very question, the one that Reed would point to, I'm looking at Bernie's struggles right now, and it seems clear to me that the bigger obstacle to building that majority coalition is winning over black voters, not not white voters, at least in the primary. So my question is, is addressing the so-called particularist politics on reparations and other issues actually a necessary condition to building that majority coalition rather than than an obstacle? Should we turn this kind of debate on its head a bit? I think that you can, especially if you recognize that there is a large contingency of of black people who would be attracted to left policies that can be pulled under the tent. So, you know, I'm curious as to how, beyond the, the people who 
are against any sort of benefits to black people who may not even be that interested in left politics, who else is who else is left that we're thinking about? You know, I've, I've got kind of a question myself, like who else are we thinking about to be in this majority? You know, a lot of folks who at least make up Democratic primary voters are people of color, progressive mm-hmm. white people. You have swing voters who, if they feel that Bernie Sanders is addressing their economic needs, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game where if he's also addressing other people's needs, that will suddenly turn them off and make them Republican. I don't know if it necessarily works that way. So I guess I'm, um, my question is, for, you know, for both of you, who are we thinking, who are we talking about exactly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wendy? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that there's... I think especially this idea about alienating certain voters is an important one to raise too. like if if they're on board with Sanders, I don't think they're going to all of a sudden drop off if he says, oh, by the way, I support reparations (laughs) like just okay, But now I'm going to vote for Biden because, you know, like he's he's supporting this idea of, um, you know, giving back to black communities that have lost so much um, as a result of our our racial policies in this country or racialized economic policies in this country. So I, I. I don't know if I if I I know for sure actually that I don't agree with Reed that it would pose some sort of risk to building a coalition and I think in fact again it goes back to education right like I remember um, you know I've had several students for example when I teach who were absolutely against reparations at the beginning of the year and then once they learn more about slavery in the Americas not just in the U S but throughout the Americas um, they they sort of came around and they were like oh crap like I didn't realize how bad it was um, and they didn't understand fully because as we said, we have a massive deficit in our education in the United States, including in, you know, private and well-funded public schools. We don't learn enough about what has happened in this country to really fully grasp why a program like this would be necessary. And so I think, again, it just goes back to educating. If, if he can get people who are formerly voting as Republican to be on board with Medicare for all um, or to be on board with certain programs that, yes, would help poor people more than any other group. I think that there are ways to talk about race in a similar way and to say, look, we're all benefiting on the backs of the struggle that these people dealt with. And so we have to talk about the ways that we can also help benefit these groups by virtue of more programs that are geared towards them. I don't think it's that difficult. It's just a matter of phrasing and educating and and reinforcing these ideas. That educational point you made, I think, is is key because reparations talk far short of reparations is an actual policy that's been implemented by the government. But reparations talk, including the talk that's been happening in recent years, is a way to teach people not about identity politics in the way that's so narrowly construed by neoliberals, but to teach people that our capitalist system, the one that created the 1% that we all hate, was founded upon enslaved labor. And these are fortunes and institutions today whose wealth and power were literally built upon the slavery system. Right. And I think a part of that education, too, is kind of what I pointed to earlier in terms of government being complicit in this and, you know, explicitly uh, supporting the the discrimination and enslavement and, and brutality of black people. And so this is a demand on governments. This is a, a demand on the federal government. This is a, a demand on, on state and city governments who are involved. You know, I, I'm based in New York City and New York City would not be um, the wealthiest in the country if it were not for their involvement in the slave trade. So I think if we point to the fact that 
these are the ways that our government, even if you were not around, then America was around then, and America mm-hmm. owes black people money. Uh, it's a it's a debt owed, period. And so I, I think if you let people know that, you know, we're not, okay, you don't want to claim this because your parents weren't responsible, but America owes this to, you know, its residents who have had roots here for hundreds and hundreds of years, but received none of the benefits that um, it, it purported to provide to people. Sorry, I think also turning it to a question of institutions, right? Because I think a lot of the problems with reparations are around, oh, well, like you said, I wasn't here. I'm an immigrant. I came after the fact. I came long after slavery, fill in the blank. Um, And I think that if we instead focus our discussion on how have institutions benefited significantly from slavery, not just I'm not not just talking about individuals, because obviously we could have an argument or discussion about, you know, how white privilege works in this country, whether or not you were around during the, the period of slavery, um, but certainly the ways that you benefit from whiteness as an idea, as a concept in a country like the United States, um, as a result of enslavement of, of a specific group of people. But I think that there's there's also a larger discussion to be had about, like, what about the institutions that you benefit from? Or not, in again, sort of de-individualizing it, right? So to right. make it a more of a systemic discussion as opposed to you, the individual, are responsible for paying for what your what people's ancestors did that may have nothing to do with you. So we have to kind of change the focus. And again, this is literally just, a, I mean, we're having this discussion right now in five minutes, changing the rhetoric. And I think as a campaign, it's certainly something that could be delved into further and done with greater adeptness. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State by Samuel Stein. Our cities are changing. Around the world, more and more money is being invested in buildings and land. Real estate is now a $217 trillion industry, worth 36 times the value of all the gold ever mined. It forms 60% of global assets, And one of the most powerful people in the world, the President of the United States, made his name as a landlord and developer. Samuel Stein shows that this explosive transformation of urban life and politics has been driven not only by the tastes of wealthy newcomers, but by the state-driven process of urban planning. Planning agencies provide a unique window into the way the state uses and is used by capital, and the means by which urban renovations are translated into rising real estate values and rising rents. Capital City explains the role of planners in the real estate state, as well as the remarkable power of planning to reclaim urban life. Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State by Samuel Stein, out now from Verso Books. Sanders has recently gotten a lot of attention for supporting the right of incarcerated people to vote. I I thought that was pretty radical. I wasn't expecting it. We live in a carceral state, which through locking up such an enormous number of people, 
also disenfranchises them in not all cases, but most and shuts them out of civic life. And that thus is part and parcel of a broader systematic voter suppression that in turn helps keep our whole system of neoliberal racial capitalism up and running. But I have no clue how this polls, including amongst black voters. What do you all think of of this proposal, both in terms of its justice and in terms of its politics more narrowly construed? How will it play? This is difficult um, because I think it depends on which black voters we're talking about. Um, I would imagine that the majority of I'm just taking an educated guess here, but I would imagine that the majority of younger black voters would be in favor of it. And I think with older black voters, we might find um, some challenges, particularly because I'm thinking about um, things like the crime bill and some of the support for that that was pushed by certain groups, not all. Again, there were obviously people who were contesting the validity or a bill like that during the time, right, contemporaneous to its passage. But I think that there might be an age gap in terms of who would support allowing incarcerated people to vote while they're still in prison and not. So that's just my guess. But I, I don't I haven't seen any stats on this because this discussion is so new. Um, but I bet I would bet if people were polled, um, they might have a breakdown on age. But then again, you know, we see obviously these people are the mothers and fathers and grandparents and relatives of those who are incarcerated as well, including the fact that a lot of people who are incarcerated are now older because they've been in prison for so long. Right. Um, so I think that it's going to be worth seeing the numbers, but I'm not sure at this point. Yeah, I think because uh, incarceration has been so racialized, we're kind of in a different era where people are more aware of that. And so when you think about felony felony disenfranchisement, I think most black people are going to think about other black people not having the right to vote. And mm-hmm. within the context of voter suppression, I think that it will it could do well, I, I think, as both a justice issue and a politics issue. And that could go across race. You know, obviously, there are conservatives who don't want regular, regular black people to have the right to vote, you know, mm-hmm. who have their freedom. But we saw that this uh, measure passed in Florida. And I don't think anybody really expected that outside of Floridians. So if this is something that can be seen in a conservative state, one that we can probably all argue has a lot of, well, no, let me not, let me not clown this out, but if we see it in, in a super conservative state like Florida, then I don't see how this can't be advertises both a justice issue and and a good politics one, especially because the Democratic focus has been on voter suppression. And, you know, some of that is, I think, a little bit superficial because there have been many, many decades that they could have been lobbying to support um, black voter enfranchisement and pushing back on, you know, Republican gerrymandering and, and legislation. But it's still within kind of the, the I think, a, a prong or spoke in this, this wheel of talking about suppression generally. On the other hand, as Cory Booker said, if Bernie Sanders wants to get involved in a conversation about whether Dylan Roof and the Marathon Bomber should have the right to vote, my focus is liberating black and brown people and low-income people from prison. <sighs> and it doesn't need even... to be at odds. <laughs> yeah, it's so, that's such a weird... Like, why is it mutually exclusive? Like, yeah. that's so silly. I don't know. Who's paying? I don't uh, know. Is anyone paying attention to Cory Booker like that? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, we'll talk more about Booker later. But for, but first, this is something that's been hinted at a few different times and we should probably address directly. Black people are not a monolith, though you wouldn't know that if your only knowledge of black people was through mainstream political reporting. 
There are generational splits, class splits, geographic splits, gender splits, and also, of course, black people as individuals are humans and hold beliefs that are as idiosyncratic or bizarre as any other American. I mean, like, every time I've done political reporting, I'm shocked by how rarely any individual's political beliefs fit within prescribed media frames, which which isn't that surprising given that we live in a country where left has been so historically marginalized. And so black people are neither the sort of romantic leftist caricature of a uniformly revolutionary militant group in waiting, nor <laughs> nor that caricature's mainstream inverse of these cautious church-going in, in incrementalists. My, so my question is a, a huge and expansive one, but can you lay out some of the major dividing lines within Black America and how Sanders might go about approaching what in reality are extremely varied communities and constituencies? Well, that is <laughs> that's a that's a big one. I don't know if we can just do that in this one conversation. Right. I I think um I mean I've talked about quite a bit of this in my reporting, at least when it comes to the Deep South and this sort of, you know, it's, it tends to be a little bit more moderate, tends to be a little bit more pragmatic in terms of voting choices compared to places like the Midwest, where you see higher rates of, of non-voting in places like Wisconsin and Minnesota. Wisconsin, by the way, as I've talked on talked about ad nauseum, it had the lowest black voter turnout in the state's history and probably the largest drop throughout the country. It was definitely the largest drop in 2016. It was cut almost in half. So there is a lot of voter engagement and Black people who are thriving in the South, or at least relatively speaking, in terms of Black home ownership rates, in terms of uh, jobless or, or employment rates that you're not seeing replicated in the Midwest. So there's going to be some, there are economic dividing lines. There's kind of a culture of unionism that you see in the North, the industrial North, that you don't necessarily see in the South. There is a culture of, of radical politics that exists in both places. Like I was, I was raised in these radical organizations in the South, but that was kind of an, an anomaly compared to a lot of my peers. And a lot of those radical organizations were based in the North that, you know, they were founded there after kind of the civil rights movement and people not seeing the the promises of the civil rights movement affect them materially in, you know, these deindustrialized and segregated cities. So, I mean, there there are so many and I, I'll have, a, I'll let Wendy chime in here. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's kind of hard to answer a question about uh, monoliths just with two black ladies on the right. <laughs> on the podcast, like we also cannot speak to every single um, difference. But I think it's one of a the Borgesian project we... of attempting to make yes. map fit territory. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think another thing that comes up as well that's often ignored, including by like immigrants rights activists, is the fact that there's also a, a rather significant black immigrant population. Um, and that includes like Afro-Latinos, Afro-Caribbeans, um, African immigrants, Afro-Arabs as well. And this this aspect of the black community, quote, you know, trademark, quote unquote, <laughs> is often left out of the discussion as well, because we, we tend to see um, black voters as U.S. born and based and having no sort of connection to the rest of the world. And that's actually incorrect. I think that there's um, there's a, there's something to be said as well about sort of 
focusing on and thinking, not focusing on, but thinking about the direction and the concerns of this particular group as well, or groups, plural, um, that we often ignore. Because I, like, for example, when we talk about um, xenophobia and anti-immigration sentiment and things like that, we're often positing in that position sort of um, Latinos and primarily Central American and Mexican uh, Latinos. And we're not necessarily talking about Arab migration, African migration, Caribbean migration. And there's a reason for that. Um, A lot of it has to do with numbers, but also a lot of it has to do with the fact that it helps further separate our communities and, and keep us from working together towards ends that would benefit all of us as opposed to just specific groups. So I think that that's another sort of territory that we need to start thinking about, especially as this this group or groups um, increase in size. And also it's one that I think goes back actually to our discussion about reparations, because one of the things that I've seen, unfortunately, growing, at least on, on the online sort of reparations discussion is this sort of nativism that posits American descendants of slaves um, sort of above those who are descendants of slaves from other places or who are also dealing with things like colonialism and the like. And so we have to kind of start having these discussions in a way that's more inclusive, but in a way that also benefits everyone. Um, and I just think that's that's another sort of aspect of this not a monolith uh, Black community. A related question is, to what degree are Sanders's problems with the Black left the same as his problems with Black voters in general, even though we just the last question was just about deconstructing that whole in general. In other words, would Sanders improving his appeal to the black left automatically improve his appeal to black voters more generally? And I guess a question embedded in those questions is to what degree is the black organized left a thing that is representative in some meaningful way of Black America more generally. What is the what is like the strength situation of the black left right now? I mean, I agree. I don't think that we can even say that the black left is monolithic. Um, there are a lot of different concerns on the black left. I think one of the biggest ones that I think I guess a dividing line um, of black left versus like all other black voters is that sometimes the black left has a tendency to be or often actually has a tendency to be more internationalist. And so there's more of a focus not only on domestic policy, but also foreign policy and how that reverberates domestically, especially with regard to funding and things like that, and how we can also express you know, there are concerns about how to properly express solidarity with Black populations in other countries as Black Black U.S. Americans. Furthermore, I think there's a discussion about um, to be had about the use and mobilization of Black Americans around um, not only xenophobic ideas, but ideas that sort of prop up the police state, that prop up the foreign policy um, institutions like the CIA um, that prop up the FBI. So how can we sort of there's there's more pushback, I would say, against uh, those institutions on the black left than I would argue within the large larger black voting population as a whole. But that's not to say that the larger black population is not engaging in these questions and isn't necessarily having taking issue with um, policing and things like that and how they go back to to these larger institutions. So I I, I don't think it's it's a massive dividing line, but I think there are certain issues that just certain black leftists are more attuned to. And I think that trickle down into a much or trickle, I guess, out into a much larger uh, group of people. And that question about the strength, the power of the the black left as an organized force today. 
arguable, um, precisely for the same reasons that we could we have issues with the left in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's just sort of a microcosmic, a microcosmic version of that. There are different concerns that are at the forefront, um, but I think the weaknesses of the reach of the black left is one that's just relegated or just, just related to the violence that's been committed towards black leftists throughout American history and black activists in general. There are massive intimidation campaigns that continue to this day uh, with regard to black activism. So I, I think it's sort of reflective of larger national problems that affect both radical organizers and people of color um, that sort of intersect within what the reach of the black left is and why it hasn't necessarily expanded beyond certain certain areas or not not geographic areas but certain you know political areas Malika? well i i struggle with this question a bit because i don't really know i don't know what that means to say you know what the black left is like i i would consider myself within that um but i think because we we have such a diversity of a black radical thought that it's hard to say that you know certain policies or or certain appeals to us appeals to you know this group would also appeal to to black people more generally because i i think there is a bit of of overlap i think a mm-hmm. lot of us care about police repression we care about you know the fact that the FBI is, you know, labeling some black liberation groups as as being um, black extremist organizations. I think black people generally care about that, but it has been fragmented because of, you know, as Wendy said, it has been fragmented because of the, you know, state intervention in our organizing. I mean, so I guess the answer to that would be, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what this, I don't know what the state is. I I think that there is a lot of room for organizing, but I I think that has to come from a mass movement more generally. And unfortunately, I think it's a a little bit more challenging to organize when we don't have the same sort of obvious and explicit uh, racism, even with, you know, everything that's going on right now compared to, to what it was in the 60s when you had you know, very clear de jure segregation and, you know, lynching that was in people's communities. So I think it's hard to to organize. I mean, obviously, you know, you can compare kind of the digital media and the, the digital um, filming of, of Black deaths that we've seen, you know, in the last decade or so, or maybe seven, seven or so years. That is like a, a form of, of terrorism that we're seeing that we could organize around. But we're in such a state, I think, of, of disarray because we're people are struggling struggling so much economically <laughs> that mm-hmm. it um, that I, I think it can be challenging to to organize in the same way. So I don't know <laughs> to answer the question. In terms of dividing lines with within Black America, an obvious one is generational splits, but I think often in mainstream media discourse around generational divides, the divide between millennials and baby boomers, people are often at least implicitly talking about white generational divides. What do you make over the the general discourse on generations and how they, they fit or don't fit black reality? 
Listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to speak to this just because I am working on an article about this right now. Because Mark, uh, Michael Arsenault published this op-ed in Essence about, I'll just paraphrase here, about getting your meme on them to not vote for Joe Biden, because that really is very clear in terms of, I think, older black voters feeling more comfortable with um, kind of establishment of Democrats. And it's almost like, you know, the devil, you know, I don't want to trust anybody else who's talking about, you know, kind of some of these like police policing issues. That's not really affecting me foreclosure. Like I've had my home for decades, like I'm good. So I think there's a sort of conservatism that comes with a little bit more economic stability that black elders, like our black mothers and, and fathers and grandparents have had that we don't necessarily have. And we're seeing the results of that in, you know, the data as early as, as the polling is, but with, you know, reports that came out and exit polls from 2016 through now. So there's definitely a generational divide with that. I think another aspect of the generational divide beyond just economics is also um, degree of, of religious adherence. Um, one of the things, one of the studies that comes out and that I've, I've seen um, iterations of in the past is, you know, that black young people are less involved in the church uh, than older black people. And I think that that also tends to to shape the way people vote, especially as, as I think about, you know, in the South nowadays, there's been a lot of um, recent collaboration between white evangelical churches, which tend to be much more conservative uh, with with black uh, churches of all sorts of sects and faiths, so I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit concerned about that move as well, and I've seen this sort of um, in my own family um, relatives who were less conservative now expressing more conservative values on the basis of their involvement in church. And when I say um, less or more conservative, I don't necessarily mean even just on social issues, but also on some economic issues. So it's it's a concern that I think connects to what. Malika mentioned, but there is there is a social side of this as well. Last two questions. I want to return to identity politics because we'd it'd be remiss to not mention that there are two black candidates in the race, at least. I mean, there's so many candidates. As far as I'm aware, there are two, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. And my question is, to what extent are they appealing to black voters on the basis of shared identity? And also, for that matter, to what degree is Biden, by virtue of being Obama's VP, appealing to black voters on the basis of identity? I mean, we can't get in people's heads, right, to decide exactly if they're supporting someone on the basis of shared racial identity. Um, and even if we took a poll on that, people may not necessarily be forthcoming or we can't always take um, polls at face value. But I think that if you look at the numbers, Kamala Harris and especially Cory Booker are not doing that well among black voters, actually, um, especially Booker. I think he's polling very low um, from the numbers that I saw from the poll that was released a couple days ago. Um, Biden and uh, Sanders are doing much better among black voters than the other two that you mentioned. Um, Harris is doing better than than Booker significantly, but I think that's in large part due to some of the endorsements that she received from rather significant um, black politicians. And I, I also think just by virtue of her being a woman, that also helps in this process because I think we've black voters and black women in particular who make up a very large uh, portion of the Democratic voting voting body have been sort of pushing for more engagement um, and a recognition of 
black women's democratic involvement, right? Um, and so that I think in some ways symbolically she's important in that front. Um, but with regard to their, the problem is their policies, right? Um, both of them have have policies and engaged in, in practices that were very detrimental to black and particularly black poor communities. Um, ask anyone in Newark, black, white, Latino, whatever, what they think about Cory Booker and, you know, it's not it's not a good look. Um, ultimately, at least at least among uh, more left leaning people of color and and poor people. So there's, I think that gap between the two of them is just a matter of like her also being a woman and and receiving so many endorsements from other black famous and well known um, and re- rather solid politically speaking uh, black women politicians. Malika. Yeah, I think this goes to something that we've kind of intimated throughout the conversation, which is that electability and, and who you choose to vote for is not necessarily can, can be assigned to one clear thing. I think identity does play into some people's support. You know, maybe people are overlooking her uh, Kamala Harris's you know criminal justice record and her record as a uh, prosecutor because of her identity. But we don't we don't know exactly what the calculus is playing in, in people's minds when they think about these things. And I think it's important, too, to think about Barack Obama was not heavily favored by Black people initially at the mm-hmm. start of his campaign. It was when he seemed like he was actually a viable candidate. After Iowa, that right? Black, mm-hmm. Right, that Black people started to rally around him more, and you saw his um, his numbers go up. So I think identity is a factor, but to what extent it is in, in this campaign is, I mean, it's unclear. It's very, I mean, I think from based on the anecdotes and based on the fact that Joe Biden is absolutely, I mean, has nothing. Re- okay, maybe not nothing. I won't speak in absolutes, but I can't think of anything <laughs> redeeming about him as a candidate other than the fact that he stood next to Barack Obama for eight years and he's leading amongst, you know, older black voters. Right. So there is a, a just a strong familiarity and comfort with him and his relationship with Barack Obama that's holding strong, that could be sort of some sort of tangential identity issue. But I mean, people also think that he can beat Trump. So. And it also goes back to what I said earlier. I mean, it goes back to what I said earlier in the sense that like, again, it's this approximation to blackness that I think helps a candidate like Joe Biden, to be honest. I mean, we, we, it could have been Barack Obama. It could have been any other mm-hmm. black candidate. But I think the fact of the matter is, if you see an older white man who's willing to shake hands with, be buddy buddy with, you know, like there, there's a there's a a lot of um, there's a, there's a big significance in this, you know, in terms of like proximity to blackness and warmth and proximity. There is not a lot of proximity to blackness in Vermont. No. <laughs> No, there isn't. But I, but I'm not even comparing Biden to to. I'm not comparing Biden to Sanders at this point, right? I'm just thinking of Biden himself as a candidate, and I think some of his just his cordiality with a black man on a stage is important, despite the fact that all of his policies pretty much have been harmful to black people rather directly. I'm not talking just about Obama, but about I'm talking specifically about Biden. I think it helps cover up and paper over a lot of the the harm that he's done. And so, you know, that that goes a long way if you're in a country that's racially divided and has had things like slavery and Jim Crow to see an older, especially an older black man who's like chilling with a young black dude. I think it makes a huge difference. And I I can't speak for every black voter who supports Biden, but I think that that has 
his proximity to a black person and his warmth of the black person has major currency in this election. Let's talk more about Obama to close out. The left in general and the black left in particular, maybe, has been highly critical of his war making Wall Street Wall Street run presidency for a lot of obvious reasons. But many black people and also many ordinary liberals of all sorts love Barack Obama. Explain black America's variety of relationships to Obama and how Bernie and also the left in general and the black left in particular should strategically approach the Obama legacy in our effort to build and win power. Barack Obama is revered um, amongst a lot of people. And I think it came at kind of an opportune moment um, where we kind of had a chance for a a second to think that this was, not us, but a lot of people had a second to think this was a post-racial society, obviously a historic presidency. And it was very emotional and very personal for people. I don't think you can go to a black grandma's house right now and not see a shrine to Barack Obama. Like literally (laughs) go in the living room. It's going to be a picture next to Michelle and some candles or something like that exists with my, from my landlady to my grandma. Like I see it in, in our homes. And so I think it's going to be very challenging to kind of untangle this personal affinity with him and, and with the, the symbolism of his presidency from the policies that, really undermined um, economic progress for people across race and did nothing to to close any of those gaps for black people. I don't, I don't know if you, do we have to, I mean, I think as a kind of a matter of um, like general principle, we should be able to, but I don't know if a matter as a matter of politics that it's necessary. I mean, he's not in the race. I don't recall um, I mean, other than the fact that Hillary Clinton was um, hearkening Barack Obama, I don't recall any of the other candidates having to talk about his legacy. But it seems to be a subject that has has entered the fray for some reason, I guess, because Biden is associated with him. But he's had so many years of neoliberal and segregationist and outright um, racist policies and rhetoric that can stand on its own. So I'm not exactly clear politically why why there is the need to invoke him. I think you can, but I'm just, I'm not sure about why it's necessary. I recall in 2016, obviously it came up a lot because as you said, Hillary would evoke him. And um, one of the things that with Bernie is that people would say, you see, he went on Tom Hartman and he spoke ill of Obama or something, or he said he was going to primary Obama. There are all these, you know, discussions about what, Sanders had done, I believe, in the 2012 race, um, at least in terms of rhetoric, and being critical of Obama um, in in the lead up to that race. I think in the present, people have to focus on policies. They don't have to necessarily, unless the person is running, as you mentioned, they don't necessarily have to name who penned those policies, who initiated those policies. I think with Biden, though, um, with Biden in the race, what could be done is just to 
avoid his avoid what he did in the past eight years altogether, right? Don't even talk about his time with Obama. Talk about what he did prior to that moment. Because as vice president, he kind of was just decoration, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, he didn't, he was, it was literally just, it ended up benefiting him, but that was pretty much all that he, he was there for, you know, decoration. His big uh, sparkling teeth were the <laughs> centerpiece. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I think that there's a way to, to kind of avoid Obama in some ways altogether and focus instead on what Biden was doing prior to that. That's where the emphasis needs to be. I think if Obama does come up, though, we're going to be talking more about results of some of his policies, which I think is where the focus should be to talk about the fact that, you know, black, the black and white wealth gap has widened and all of these things. You don't even necessarily have to mention Obama while trying to address those things. I wish that we could because it's the reality, but I also think that there were things that were happening well in advance of his presidency that sort of helped along um, this process with him in office too. And so we just, I, th- I think it's a matter of just sticking to policy um, unless the person is actually running. And I think that way they can sort of avoid the prospect of <laughs> getting wading into this rather dangerous territory. I mean, it's a third rail for some people for sure. So that's how to avoid it, I think. The other area where I think Obama does become relevant, though, is with regard to foreign policy. So one of the things that kind of got Sanders in trouble with the left in 2016 is the fact that he agreed with uh, Obama's droning campaign. And, you know, that's a matter of Sanders himself improving on foreign policy matters as opposed to necessarily even needing to evoke Obama, Um, because I think for some people, they saw that as an alignment with Obama on on some fronts. And so therefore it made it okay. It sort of softened it, not speaking again of the left, but people who were considering going from an Obama vote to a Sanders vote. Uh, But I think beyond that, yeah, he can just be avoided. Malika? Sure. I think, um, I guess just kind of circling back to um, the conversation generally in terms of, you know, Bernie Sanders' role in this and and how he can appeal to black voters. I think we all can just kind of take a step back and take a deep breath because this is still pretty early in the process. And, (laughs) you know, I know we got into, you know, some of the nitty gritty here, but politics, as I mentioned before, is not always kind of this, the science of looking at anyone's perfect policies. I think there's a lot of ways to someone to make oneself, you know, more personable, more familiar to build these connections. And a lot of what we're seeing right now in terms of numbers is just far too early to make any determinations about who's got to lead with what we have. We have not had a single debate. Joe Biden has barely had um, the need to defend any of his policies. And I think with more education, which will happen, we've got several months for that. I think people will be able to, you know, make some more accurate predictions about what can happen. But right now, it's still a little bit early. I think it's helpful to have these conversations, but there's so much time um, to kind of gain ground. And I don't advocate for any particular candidacy or candidate, but I do not mind, you know, talking about the terror of Joe Biden. And I think we need to, to have just push back on that narrative because there's a lot of time to do that. There's also a need, I think, on at least Sanders's part 
to avoid a lot of these unforced errors. Um, there have, I mean, we discussed some of them in this in this podcast episode, but I think that there are, at least I see myself as someone who supported him in 2016, looking at this 2020 election and saying, how are you still doing this, right? Like, how is this still an impediment for you um, to talk about certain issues? Or how how are you still sort of falling into this, on, on this landmine um, when it could easily have been avoided by just a matter of different phrasing or wording. I think that's something that if the campaign intends to win and particularly win among black voters, they should know and be aware of and work around to fix. And I think that involves listening to people and engaging with people that um, in ways that I think maybe there's been some resistance to. I'm not sure. I, I'm not in, involved with the campaign, so I can't speak to it. But I would say if you're continuing to make these errors well and in, well into the process, that's been going on now for four or five years, that there's something deeper at play um, that maybe needs to be considered and and fixed. But again, I'm like Malika, I don't, I mean, I, I, if forced to vote today, I guess I would vote for Sanders, but I don't even know, you know, where I, I know I don't like any of the other candidates, but I don't think that's a reason to say that he can continue to make the unforced errors that again, make him, a less favorable candidate against someone who's performing a bit stronger right now, like Biden. The point is to hold on to the level of support that you have from voters who are of color as opposed to losing them. So they need to to focus on that. Well, Malaika Jabali and Wendy Muse, thank you both very much. Thank, thank you. you. Malika Jabali is a public policy attorney, writer, and activist whose writings on politics and race have appeared in Jacobin, The Intercept, and Current Affairs, among other places. Wendy Muse is a PhD candidate in history at New York University and the creator of The Left Pocket Project, which makes the histories of leftist movements led by and comprised of people of color more easily accessible to the public. You can check them out at LeftPOC on Twitter. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the nation that oppresses another nation forges its own chains. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. Also, please take a moment to leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. <laughs> <laughs>